Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Thursday, June 11th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, weird comfort foods born out of historic times of discomfort. How to hug during a pandemic. Electric vehicle batteries may get a second life. Drones are now delivering library books to kids in Virginia. And the best custom birthday videos on the internet. If you've got any family recipes that have been handed down through the generations, there might be some strange ones in the mix. For example, among my grandma's genuinely delicious recipes, there's also one for mock apple pie, which is literally just boiled sugar and cream of tartar spread across some saltine crackers and topped with cinnamon. No apples or anything. She also has a recipe for pineapple pizza, That's just a lump of baked bisquick topped with a can of crushed pineapples. And I love it. Genuinely one of my favorite comfort foods. My grandma grew up in the 30s and 40s, the oldest of 12 kids in a two-room house. She learned to cook for lots of people with very little and to make it last. And that's how a lot of strange comfort foods began. A little bit of innovation and a lot of necessity. The creators probably didn't think that their dish would be something people would want to keep making for years to come, but many of those dishes have become cultural touchstones that remain hugely popular. Or maybe obscurely popular in some cases. Atlas Obscura has an ongoing series sharing many of these comfort foods born of historic times of discomfort. Here are a few interesting ones. If you're from Pennsylvania, you're probably familiar with Scrapple, which was started by German immigrants to the U.S. in the 17th century by combining unwanted pork parts with wheat flour. But they weren't the only ones turning to grains to make meat last. 19th century German Americans in Cincinnati mixed beef and pork scraps with oats to create getta, G-O-E-T-T-A. It would be formed into a loaf and sliced up like bread, sometimes fried or spiced with herbs or onions. It became such a staple that companies in the Midwest started mass-producing Geta and selling it in tubes. And one of those companies even has an annual festival now in its 20th year called Geta Fest. Next is the Peruvian dessert Ranfanyote, made of cheese, dried fruit, nuts, and spiced syrup-soaked bread. Quoting Atlas Obscura, The combination of stale bread and ingredients such as wild coquitos and salty cheese points to a chef motivated by resourcefulness and necessity. Many believe that African slaves left to work with the scraps of their master's meals are the likeliest inventors, and Afro-Peruvians remain strongly associated with the dish. This small portion of the population, about 3%, is known for cooking with an unrefined solid cane sugar called chancaca as well as spices like cloves and star anise, all of which appear in Renfanyote. Still, Peruvians are at odds when it comes to tracing the origins of this dessert, which Olechea calls an allegory to the country's racial politics. Some suspect the bread pudding is the brainchild of soldiers who got creative with rations, like cheese, bread, and cane sugar products, during the War of the Pacific against Chile. Others hypothesize that colonial mestizo bakers were just looking for a way to use up stale loaves of bread, end quote. Whatever the origins, Ranfanyote faded in popularity to popular European desserts for a while, but has recently been revived by chefs aiming to popularize traditional Peruvian dishes. Moving on now to a really weird one. A lot of kids growing up in the 1920s might have had spiced birthday cakes that they had no idea were actually made with tomato soup. Yep, 
Often called a mystery cake in recipe books so as not to turn people off, a can of tomato soup was often added to stretch the batter when short on other ingredients. Marianne Bull, who posted her grandmother's recipe to Food 52, says, It tastes nothing like tomato soup, I assure you, but rather like a nice spice cake, spotted with raisins, best with a cream cheese frosting, end quote. The tomato soup cake became so popular during wartime and afterwards that in 1947, Campbell's Soup adopted it as an official recipe that is still on their website to this day. Another soup, but this time one that stays in the bowl, doodle soup, a favorite in Tennessee. Like most of the recipes on this list, the origins are hazy, but most people agree it dates back to the Civil War. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Roasted chicken drippings are simply mixed with vinegar and cayenne pepper before being thickened with flour. According to the Tennessean, rural folks eat it with flaky biscuits, while town dwellers prefer the metropolitan cracker. An ongoing debate in Bradford, which declared itself the doodle soup capital of the world in 1957. Their annual doodle soup days festival is in its 40th year. End quote. One more soup, or stew, rather, Hoover stew. Made from macaroni, sliced hot dogs, and corn stewed with canned tomatoes. It's basically like an early iteration of SpaghettiOs. Of course, unlike the joy brought from a can of SpaghettiOs, the Hoover stew, as you can maybe guess from its name, was not born out of a happy occasion. It was a budget-friendly recipe to keep kids fed during the Great Depression, and named, like many things of the era, from Hoovervilles to Hoover Blankets, aka newspaper, after President Herbert Hoover. Despite its practical and grim origins, the recipe remained popular throughout the 20th century. And finally, a dish that I genuinely might try myself soon. It's called Crumble In. Like crumble hyphen in. I-N. And it's literally just cornbread dipped in or fully immersed in milk. Its origins lie with farmer families in 19th century southern Appalachia who were often short on money, but if they had a cow and some cornmeal, they could easily make this hearty snack. Quoting Atlas Obscura, When hunger struck, they would simply dunk or entirely submerge a chunk of cornbread in a glass of milk. For those who could handle the bite, buttermilk proved even heartier, leveled out by the addition of maple syrup or honey. To take it the savory route, some added a sprinkle of black pepper on top of the rich, creamy snack. End quote. And this cornbread snack is still common to this day. Earlier this week, I shared a survey of over 500 epidemiologists assessing which common daily activities they'd feel comfortable returning to and when. A lot of them said it's time to do away with handshaking as a social custom altogether. But many of them also said that they miss hugs, and that hugging family and close friends will be one of the first things they do once they feel there's sufficient testing, tracing, and treatment of COVID-19. If you're feeling the same way, the New York Times spoke to some experts for tips on safe ways to hug during the pandemic. Quoting the Times, Based on mathematical models from a Hong Kong study that shows how respiratory viruses travel during close contact, Dr. Lindsay Marr, an aerosol scientist at Virginia Tech and one of the world's leading experts on airborne disease transmission, calculated that the risk of exposure during a brief hug can be surprisingly low, even if you hugged a person who didn't know they were infected and happened to cough. Here's why. We don't know the exact dose required for the new coronavirus to make you sick, but estimates range from 200 to 1,000 copies of the virus. An average cough might carry anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 viruses, but most of the splatter lands on the ground or nearby surfaces. 
When people are in close contact, typically only about 2% of the liquid in the cough, or about 100 to 200 viruses, would be inhaled by or splashed on a person nearby. But only 1% of those stray particles, just one or two viruses, will actually be infectious. We don't know how many infectious viruses it takes to make you sick. Probably more than one, said Dr. Marr. If you don't talk or cough while hugging, the risk should be very low. End quote. But because of these unknowns, it is still safest to avoid hugs. Though, as the Times notes, hugs and physical affection are necessary for calming our sympathetic nervous system. Our brains are designed to detect affectionate touch. The longer lockdowns and social distancing measures go on, the more some of us might just have to risk it and hug someone. So if that is you, here are some do's and don'ts. Don't hug face-to-face, or with cheeks together and facing the same direction. Dr. Marr says, quote, When the shorter person looks up, their exhaled breath, because of its warmth and buoyancy, travels up into the taller person's breathing zone. If the taller person is looking down, there is an opportunity for the hugger's exhaled and inhaled breaths to mingle, end quote. Facing opposite directions, however, is great, and small kids hugging adults around the legs or waist if you're both looking in opposite directions is also okay, since there's a low risk of either person exhaling right into each other's faces. The kids' droplets could linger on clothing, though, so consider maybe changing your clothes and washing your hands afterwards. Washing your hands after hugging is suggested across the board for all hugs. Also, wear a mask. Keep the hugs brief. Back away quickly afterwards, don't talk or cough while you're hugging, and the saddest tip in this whole article, quote, try not to cry. Tears and runny noses increase the risk for coming into contact with more fluids that contain the virus, end quote. Which, I mean, yeah, that makes sense, but wow, it sounds so sad. Nevertheless, these are all ways to reduce risk. But like so many things, there still is a risk. It's not time to reintroduce hugs as a greeting. Far from it. But if you need a hug from a close friend and you follow these guidelines, you should be okay. Dr. Marr advises being picky on who you hug. Quote, I would take the Marie Kondo approach. The hug has to spark joy. Researchers at MIT think they've discovered a new solution to the need for solar energy storage. Used electric vehicle batteries. Quoting IEEE, There are now 2 million solar energy installations in the United States alone. This number, according to Wood McKenzie and the Solar Energy Industries Association, is expected to grow to 3 million next year and to 4 million by 2023. Yet such installations can only generate electrons when the sun is shining, which means plenty of solar power will be available during daytime hours with a dearth of power on cloudy days or at night. In other words, as solar and wind power expands, the need for energy storage only ramps up, says Ian Matthews, Murray Curry Research Fellow formerly at MIT. End quote. Lithium-ion batteries are being used in a lot of cases for solar storage, but they're expensive and, at least currently, dependent on rare and limited minerals like cobalt. The MIT team ran an economic model of a grid-scale solar farm's 20-year life cycle using three types of storage. A new lithium-ion storage bank, a battery bank built from used electric vehicle batteries operating at 80% capacity, and no storage at all. Quoting again, For batteries reduced to 80% of their original capacity, Matthews said, it's reasonable to assume an EV owner will want better performance from their car and will likely trade up. 
But grid storage doesn't place such a high premium on extracting every last ounce of energy from every cell. For grid storage, 80% performance is good enough, especially if that used battery comes to the solar farm at a good price. The group ultimately found that used EV batteries purchased at 80% of their original capacity will deliver marginally better revenues for the solar plant than a similar bank of new batteries. And if the solar farm can buy those batteries at 60% of original retail price, the farm can potentially even return a profit, all other factors being equal. Matthews says EVs are still coming online in small enough numbers that their used battery packs haven't yet become a big or noticeable force to reckon with. But he expects in a few years' time, that will probably change. Used EV batteries could become so widely available that they'd be valuable for any number of energy storage applications, end quote. Matthews has begun getting in touch with investors to set up a Second Life battery marketplace so that batteries could be organized towards some of those various energy storage applications after their initial electric vehicle tenure has ended. There's a lot of collaboration and logistics that will need to be worked out, but the idea of giving an already eco-friendly item a second, even more eco-friendly life is very cool, and definitely the type of solution that we need to be having more of. Kids in Virginia aren't going to be able to use closed libraries and bookstores as an excuse not to do their summer reading, because Google's sister company Wing is going to be delivering library books to their houses via drone. Thanks, Google. Why Wing and why Virginia? Well, quoting the Washington Post, Wing, a company owned by Google parent Alphabet, received federal approval last year to deliver by drone in Virginia, beating Amazon's Prime Air to the public testing milestone. The company also delivers packages which can weigh up to about three pounds in Helsinki and two Australian cities. The tests serve relatively small numbers of people, and expansion plans in the United States hinge on the Federal Aviation Administration approval. Wing started delivering household goods and meals from Walgreens and local restaurants to a limited area of the southwest Virginia town that covers several thousand homes last October, end quote. The upcoming library book delivery service is primarily thanks to the efforts of Kelly Pasick, a middle school librarian who has been pushing for the use of drones for book delivery service since last fall, when she first noticed how quickly her wing orders were arriving at her house after the company launched its test site last year in Christianburg, Virginia. When schools first closed in the spring due to the pandemic, Pasek and other district librarians had books delivered to the students on the school buses that delivered breakfast and lunch to every district student each day. Now, thanks to Pasek's hard work and perhaps the added passion of Wing's head of Virginia operations, whose mother is also a librarian, book deliveries to students via drone will begin this week. Roughly 600 students who live in the delivery zone will be eligible to receive the library books, and they won't have to return them until school resumes in the fall. Ending today with a YouTube channel recommendation of sorts. It's been around quite a while, but I just discovered it this morning when a friend shared one of their videos in a group chat. The channel is called Epic Happy Birthdays, and they have thousands of birthday videos featuring different names so that you can send what feels like a customized birthday video to your friend on their birthday. Though it is a bit like trying to find your name on those tiny license plates at the Five and Dime, so if you're looking to send a birthday message to someone with a more unique name, you might want to utilize the company's custom video option on their website. Unlike the free videos on their YouTube channel, it does cost money to get a fully customized one. Now I know, customized birthday greetings are nothing new. 
In fact, I've seen some recently that use some type of deepfake technology to make animated characters perfectly mouth and sing people's names and custom birthday greetings. But it might be that exact advancement of technology that makes these simpler videos appealing to me. The larger reason I'm recommending it, though, is because these videos are hilarious. They come in a few different varieties, including their original epic version, an epic cat version, an alien remix, a sloth rap, and a sort of Dwight Schrute-esque It Is Your Birthday song. The graphics, while well-produced, are that sort of chaotic style that looks like the early 2000s internet vomited onto a 1080p video. There's dinosaurs, explosion, lots of stock film and images, horrible font choices. I mean, it is definitely not for everyone, but it is perfect for someone in your life. You've got to watch them to really get the gist, but I will play you a quick clip of the original epic birthday song to give you an idea. Today just so happens to be Peter Dinklage's birthday, so here is the Happy Birthday Peter epic happy birthday song. And it continues on from there. So, hey, with so many people celebrating their birthdays during quarantine, unable to have in-person gatherings, the usual e-card is probably getting a bit stale. So if you want to really surprise someone with an absolutely ridiculous birthday video, Epic Happy Birthdays has your back. That is all for today. If you try any of those comfort food recipes I mentioned at the start of the show, or if you have your own family recipes to share, or just want to share anything else, you can tweet at me on Twitter at JackIsNotABird. Link will be in the show notes. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.